Thanks, Springer. <coughs> Gesundheit. All right. Um, we are in a series working through the Minor Prophets. Uh, we started last week looking at Hosea, and, uh, which means that tonight we're going to be in the book of Joel, uh, which is so short, I was really tempted to just read the book of Joel and let that be it. And then make you all feel judged if you were like, well, what were you, weren't you going to teach us something? And then be like, what, is the Bible not good enough? But I decided not to do that and to instead be somewhat more helpful and less judgmental. Um, let me pray uh, for us before we, we dive into this book. Uh, Father, we thank you for, uh, for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to be fed by it. And we ask that you would bless us as we listen to your voice through the scriptures. Pray that you would tune our hearts, um, attune them to see Christ and to delight and rejoice in him and in his work among us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, I was reminded on the way over here of a song. It's a, it's a rap by a man named Shai Lin who put together a children's album. I know every word that I have uttered has been unexpected at this point. Um, not one word followed after what I thought you were going to say. Uh, Shylin did a children's album called Jesus Kids. And on this album, which is available for download online, and I'm sure you can find this particular song on YouTube for free, uh, there's a song which is the books of the Bible. I think that's just the name of the song, the books of the Bible. It is um, the books of the Bible. And he goes through really helpfully, very rhythmically, uh, just helping kids and their parents potentially memorize the order of the books of the Bible, including the Minor Prophets is included in there. And I was singing that song to myself because I was trying to remember who was teaching what next. And I could not remember the order except for that song. Next week, it is Amos, and I know that, and I'm not going to sing to you why, but it is true. I think Reuben is teaching on Amos. Is that right? Yeah. So Reuben, next week, will be teaching on Amos. Um, I would encourage you to look up that song, though. Uh, find it and listen to it a few times. It's very catchy, and you will have memorized the entire order of the Minor Prophets within no time. So do that. Tonight, we are in Joel. Last week, Brad summarized Hosea. Uh, and, and of course, as Brad mentioned, I mean, each of these prophetic books is written by, recorded um, by uh, a particular man whom the Lord put forward among his people with a particular message. Uh, in many cases to the northern kingdom, which is called Israel uh, in the Bible, and then oftentimes, in, in, well, in many cases, the southern kingdom. Sometimes both. The southern kingdom is called Judah. Um, and that's where, the, that's where Jerusalem is, that's where the temple is. Um, of course, the prophets, even as they speak to a particular audience, we know that their message is so broadly applicable to all of God's people, not just in those days, but through all time. Uh, and, and even well beyond us, uh, their words have significance. Um, here in the prophets, the Lord is giving a running commentary of the events that are taking place uh, in the life of his people, in the life of that particular nation. Um, and so it's really helpful for us to see what the Lord detests, 
but also to get a glimpse of what hope we can have from the Lord, even as we face up to very stark realities, not just about the world outside us, but, but about ourselves, uh, about the, the world inside the walls of a church, even. Uh, what, what does the Lord have to say to us that, is, that maybe is at times rebuking us, but also providing glimpses of gospel hope? Uh, Joel is such a great picture of that. All the prophets are, but, but Joel especially tonight, I'm really uh, glad to, to study with you guys. So Joel is a relatively unknown prophet. Uh, we really uh, don't know virtually anything about him except that he wrote this book. Um, there are men in the Old Testament named Joel. I think there's something like 12 men named Joel in the Old Testament. He is none of those guys. Uh, he's, he's different. He's a different guy. And, uh, and so that's, it's kind of interesting. We don't really know, for example, like, like with Isaiah, uh, Isaiah was in the court of the king. He was uh, from a prominent family in Israel, an important family. He had access to the king that most other prophets didn't simply have. And so Isaiah in his message, uh, it comes in a very unique context. Joel, we don't really... <laughs> We don't know. Does anybody even know who Joel is? Does anyone care? We're not really sure. But Joel has been tasked with a message by God, from God, uh, to the people of Israel. We don't really know if he's only thinking of the northern kingdom or only of the southern kingdom. The way he speaks and, and how little he refers to Israel, it suggests that he, he was probably speaking at a time after the exile of that northern kingdom. Uh, if the northern kingdom's not around, you're probably not going to have a whole lot to say to them. And so it seems likely that he was speaking at a time after uh, the northern kingdom's exile in the 700s BC. But, and this is, there's a lot of debate here, but it seems likely that he was probably speaking after the southern kingdom had been exiled, after Judah's exile. Uh, there are different reasons for that, but a lot of it comes from the fact that much of what he describes uh, is very oriented around the temple, very oriented around Jerusalem and Mount Zion, which is kind of the hill that the temple was on. Um, and so it seems to be the case that that was still somewhat a focal point for God's people. Uh, but, but as he describes the, just the, the actions of Israel's and of Judah's enemies, it seems like this is all too real for him. And that very likely the southern kingdom of Judah had also been exiled uh, at this point as well. Um, so he is speaking to them, and, and a lot of what he says is in very poetic language. If you've read Joel, and I encourage you after tonight to take five minutes and do that, if you've ever read the book of Joel, uh, it, it's got a lot of uh, kind of stanza-type arrangement. And there's lines that indicate some, some poetry to it, some rhythm to the words that he is speaking. Um, and, and that is something that's helpful for us to know as well. Poetry oftentimes uses very heightened language. The, the idea of poetry is to really tap into emotion. It's to make you feel something. Uh, to make you sense something with your heart. Maybe even more than with your own mind. The, the reality of something. Now what's Joel talking about that that would matter? Uh, his primary focus in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 seems to be a horde of locusts that have come to invade Israel. 
Chapter 1, he outlines the the devastation of this horde as it sweeps into the land and wipes out all their crops, destroys everything. Um, And if you want, uh, turn with me to chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, this, is, this is what has happened because of these locusts. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Those are pretty uh, staple crops in the Israeli farming system. And for these things to be gone is a, is a really big deal. No grain, that means no bread. No wine, that means nothing to drink. No oil, that, that means you, you can't, you, you, there's, that oil is a very important part of their diet. But not only is it, are all these things important parts of their economy and sustenance, uh, these things are also essential for the sacrificial system, for the system of offerings that God's people have been commanded to make before the Lord in the temple. If you don't have grain and you don't have wine and you don't have oil, then you don't have offerings to the Lord either. Uh, and, and, and we see this in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, this is the Lord through Joel speaking to Israel, urging them to put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. The desolation that has come about in Israel is not just a, it's not just a surface level thing. It, it is right at the core of who God's people are, or right at the core of, of what they should be, which is people who worship the Lord. And yet they're unable to do this rightly because of this swarm of locusts that have swept into the land. Um, there are questions about how this horde develops, specifically in chapter 2, though. In chapter 1, it seems really clear that Joel is describing an actual locust horde. Real bugs swarming through the land. This sort of thing would happen all the time. Uh, you're familiar with the Exodus and the horde, the plague of locusts. Uh, but the, but the, this is just a more or less common occurrence throughout the ancient world in this particular part of the world. Locusts come and they wipe stuff out. You know, uh, in fact, the locusts are so that even their life stages and the things that they do mean that they've got like different names for different types of locusts. Uh, Joel is where you go to find out all the Hebrew words for the various types of grasshoppers in the ancient world. Right? This is if you want to know, the, he describes all of them. Um, chapter two, though, the the language that he uses to describe these locusts. Uh, it shifts, it takes a different sort of tone, and it goes from being something that seems to be more or less mundane, locusts swarming through the land, into something that almost strikes you as out of like a horror film. And we'll, we'll get there in a moment, but the way he describes these locusts in chapter 2 is so heightened and so intense and frankly so terrifying that it makes you wonder, and scholars have wondered for centuries, if he's not talking about something more going on. I, I happen to think, and a lot of people think as they read this, 
that he's not just describing locusts anymore in chapter 2, but that he's really talking about something that those original locusts point to that is greater and more severe and even more serious for the people of God. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. Some other interesting things to note about Joel, it is very oriented around the God of Israel, which might sound like an obvious statement, but I found this really interesting. The number of references to Israel's God, whether by name, Yahweh, or by uh, just what he is often called the the Lord or God, Elohim, uh, and even just references to pronouns that clearly refer to God, he, him, uh, his there are enough references to the God of Israel in the book of Joel that there there is at least, at least one reference to this God per verse in this book. I'm not saying that every verse references God, but I'm saying if you were to spread these out and distribute them evenly, you'd have a reference to God in every single verse in this book. That's how much the Lord is on the mind of Joel, even as he's talking to Israel about this horrible, destructive thing that is taking place. Another major theme that is directly related to this, however, is the concept of the day of the Lord. Uh, Joel mentions this uh, about as much as any other minor prophet. The day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, what, what is that? There, there are a lot of ways to think about it. There are kind of big picture ways, but also kind of small scale ways to think about it. If nothing else, it's the day of the Lord's judgment on his enemies. Or it's a day or a time, maybe an era, in which the Lord visits his judgment upon those who are opposed to him. If you're an Israelite, it should be, theoretically, a day of of blessing. If you're one of God's people, the day of the Lord should be a good thing for you. And yet, over time, and certainly by the point Joel steps on the scene to speak, the people of God had gotten this idea in their heads that the day of the Lord was a day of blessing regardless of Israel's own obedience to the covenant that they had with the God of Israel. It's gotten to a point where in the life of the people of Israel, northern or southern kingdom, it really does not matter, there's a presumption about the Lord's covenant with them that that essentially they will always be blessed by him and the day of the Lord when he visits will always only be a blessing simply because they are his people regardless of how much they look like a people that honors and reveres the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 15 says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Chapter 2, verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is a great and very is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? 
or verse 31 in chapter 2. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then finally in chapter 3, verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. If Joel makes nothing else clear, it is that the day of the Lord is not a day of rejoicing and just blanket blessing on anyone, including God's people, if God's people are at odds with the people's God. There, there is a, there's a disconnect here that has taken place. And the day of the Lord is no longer a source of blessing or hope or joy for the people of God. But like this locust plague that has wiped everything out, including their ability even to worship God rightly, the day of the Lord too is coming and will bring destruction without repentance. That's Joel's message. That's his idea. I want to look at some key passages here to maybe bring this home because I think, I think there, there are some interesting elements to what you would think would be a very hopeless message. Uh, but that, according to Joel, over time it, it evolves through this text into something that actually is joyful and hopeful. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, I'm going to start there and then we'll jump a little bit later in chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate, set apart the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room, and the bride her chamber. In other words, this is a very important moment that you all need to stop what you're doing to come to. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they, the nations, say among the peoples, Where is their God? And keep note of that question. Where is their God? That, that's a really important question that is implied throughout this text. If we jump ahead to verse 26 of chapter 2, this theme continues, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. Let me say that again. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. 
Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Let's look at some just interesting elements of these passages. Uh, and we've established this already to a large extent. The, the day of the Lord, God's judgment day, is really a source of terror and dread. But why is that? What is so dreadful and terrifying about the day of the Lord? Uh, we get this horrific description of the locust horde. I mentioned that in chapter 1 we see these locusts come in, but that in chapter 2 the, the imagery is really heightened. Look at chapter 2, 1 through 3. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. Are we talking about locusts anymore, or what's going on? A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. These locusts are such that you can apparently describe them as people. It's what leads many to think that this is not an army of bugs anymore, but really an army of, of men. Their like has never been seen before nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. This is the original scorched earth policy. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes. What's, what's crazy about this is that this army in, in, in Joel's book here, is described later on, or maybe before, I can't remember, as nothing less than the army of the Lord himself. You may read this and think, oh my goodness, the Lord, he's lost control of some pagan, horrible army that is running amok, running rampant through the hills of Israel, set to wipe us all out. The Lord is seeing this, and he, he's not doing anything to stop it, or, or he, maybe he's helpless to fix this problem, but the reality is this army is, is in fact his army. As horrifying and terrifying as this locust horde is, is actually being used by the Lord for his own purposes, which might actually be more terrifying and horrifying than anything else that we've read so far. Uh, but this, this army being tools in his hand. And so this is a terror to anyone who opposes God, but even, and maybe most especially, it's a terror to God's faithless people. The Israelites. Why, why do we think that the Israelites have been faithful? If you turn to chapter 2, verse 12, which I believe we've read already here, but let's read it one more time. Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart. Something has taken place in the life of Israel, and Joel doesn't really get into the specifics of Israel's sin necessarily. Uh, but something has taken place in the life of Israel in which the Lord has to say to them, You need to return to me. 
nothing else, the Israelites have wandered away from their God. Uh, they, they, have, they have abandoned his precepts. They have abandoned his law. They have abandoned true worship of the one true God, maybe in favor of idolatrous other ways of worshiping other gods or even idolatrous ways of worshiping the God of Israel, but in accordance with the wrong rules. Whatever the case is, they've wandered from the Lord, and his urging to them is that they would return to me. Return to the Lord is what he says. Not only that, it, it seems as though in this moment here, the, the day of the Lord is, it, as it hastens, there is this fear that the Lord has in fact abandoned Israel. I mentioned this question earlier that Joel poses in chapter 2, verse 17. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Implied there is that Israel is also kind of wondering the same thing. Even as we call out to the Lord, we're wondering where you are. Here we face destruction. We face judgment for our wandering. And, and it raises the question among the nations, but also among God's people, has the Lord abandoned his people? Rightly or wrongly, has the Lord abandoned Israel? Has the Lord abandoned us? It's a, it's a pretty grim story, right? It seems pretty hopeless. The Lord's army is tracking the Israelites down, laying waste to the land. It looks like the Garden of Eden one day and the next. It's, it's just smoldering ash. And it's the Lord's army that's doing this. The people of Israel wonder if the Lord is even there, if he has utterly abandoned them. But the hope that is found in this book, unbelievably, is in this one true God. Uh, the, the, the hope, the direction that's given to the people of Israel is that they would return to their God. That, that's what he says in chapter 2, verse 12. Return to me, says the Lord. And so even as they are, they are truly unworthy of being in the presence of God, even as it seems that they are running from the army of the Lord, the solution is not to continue running away, but the solution, unbelievably, is that they would turn to the Lord, that they would go toward him, and that they would do that with repentance and by his grace. So chapter 2, verse 13, rend your hearts. Well, even let's back up to verse 12 again. Return to me with all your heart. What does that look like? With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Right, with open acknowledgement of the nature of your sin and the reality of it. Rend your hearts and not your garments. This is not merely an outward symbolic thing. We're done with gestures. Rend your hearts. Tear those apart. That's what needs to be broken here for there to be repentance or restoration. Return to the Lord your God. Why? The, the, the God of these armies? Why would we return to him? Oh, well, it's because he's gracious and merciful. It's because he's slow to anger. It's because he's abounding in steadfast love. And it's because he relents over disaster. Who knows? Maybe he will return and relent and leave 
a blessing behind him. And you catch what that blessing is that the Lord might leave behind him. It's the very thing that the Israelites are unable to generate on their own, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. In other words, you have nothing, you bring nothing to the table. Return to me and I'll set it all for you. And you will worship me in the rightest way. Because I will provide for you everything that has been lost, everything that has been destroyed because of your own wandering, I will make the way possible for you to worship me in spirit and in truth. It's an incredible, I mean, there's just, some, just such incredible hope here right where you would least expect to find it. And, and, and this hope is entered, the presence of the Lord is entered through the grace of repentance. And it's not just that, they, that, that the Israelites then go and, and enter into the Lord's presence, but even more than that, it's that the Lord would, would condescend to, to dwell among them. This has always been the promise of the Old Testament. It's always been the aim of God's people, even from the moment where he established his tabernacle in the wilderness with them, and dwelled among them and would go out. His stuff was packed up first and sent out leading the way in the wilderness as God's people packed up their tents and then followed him. The Lord's presence with them has always been their hope. It has always been their defense and always been the the promise that the Lord has given them. Jesus' name, Emmanuel, is God with us. This This is the story of the gospel throughout Scripture. And here in Joel, we see the Lord's presence with them, but his presence with them is not one of wrath and judgment like you would expect. But because of his grace and his mercy, it's actually their only hope. It is where they find life eternal as he dwells with them. Chapter 2, 26 and 27, reading that again. You shall eat plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know, what will they know? That I am in the midst of Israel. That I am the Lord your God and there is none else. Israel's hope is not that they would find some way of of convincing the Lord to allow them in his presence. No, Israel's hope is that the Lord would initiate all of it by coming to dwell again with them. And he blesses them in his presence. But this takes a really specific turn here in verse 28 and 29. And it's a turn that is noted on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter uh, 2, where Peter is speaking to the masses who have gathered as God's people have spoken in different languages. And the assumption is that all the disciples and new Christians here in this crowd are maybe just so drunk they do not even know what they're saying. But Peter points out this is actually evidence of the Holy Spirit and, and their ability to speak in these different languages is, is, is a sign to them that the Holy Spirit has now come and dwells among God's people. And then he references this passage in Joel chapter 2. It shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even male and female servants in those days, I'll pour my spirit out on them too. From the top to the bottom of society, 
the Holy Spirit is given to God's people. This presence of the Lord is not then just resigned to the temple. It's not just specifically located on Mount Zion. It's not even specifically anymore tied down to the walls of Jerusalem. But the presence of the Lord comes to dwell not just around his people or even among his people, but in fact in his people by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is given to God's people by which they might know him personally as he dwells within them through the third person of the Trinity, who is the Holy Spirit. What does this mean for us? It means, it means a lot of things. <laughs> well, let's, let's maybe narrow down a few things. One thing that Joel's book here teaches us is that being God's people, having that label, does not exempt us or anyone from judgment, right? Um, don't let outward signs or shows of, of belonging to God's people distract you from the inward deviations of your own heart. I think sometimes it can be easy for us to, to kind of subtly slide and fool ourselves uh, into looking at the outward appearances, even the ones that we value, even the ones that we see in ourselves, maybe especially the outward appearances that we see of ourselves. Well, I do this, and I go to this, and I'm a part of this, and I, and I pray this way, and I'm not ashamed of this, and I speak that, and I memorize these things, and I, I know all of these good doctrines, and I'm, I'm, I'm compassionate, and I'm kind, and I'm, I'm able to, uh, to, to, to find people on the fringes and bring them in. No, all these outward things are good, but they are still outward things. And, and what is important to note here is that, is that the outward signs of belonging to God's people can sometimes actually be a distraction from, from the inward signs of belonging to God's people. God's people are known, according to Joel, for seeking God's face. He says in verse 32, call out to the Lord. That's the sign. All these other things, apart from calling out to the Lord, are, are maybe deceptive, not just to everyone else, but even to yourself. But, but are you calling out to the Lord? Are you looking to him and, and everything? Number two, another way in which Joel's book applies to us is that, is that it's the kindness of the Lord that ultimately leads to repentance and restoration. As hopeless as our sin may be at times, as hopeless as our own resolve may be to pursue holiness and righteousness and Follow the Lord in spirit and in truth, as hopeless as it may look when you do look at yourself. Uh, the Lord's kindness is actually the source of our repentance. Uh, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He says, don't presume upon the kindness of the Lord, or don't you know that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance? It's his goodness. It is, it is his good desire and design that anyone should come to repentance. And so as we maybe even fear judgment for our sin, the solution is not to continue running further away from the Lord, but it is instead to run to the Lord and to bank on, to presume in a good way that the Lord is incredibly kind. He's incredibly gracious to his people. No matter, no matter where they're coming from, 
You think of the story of the prodigal son, right? The father who, who joyfully sprints out of his house. And with all the indignity that comes with sprinting as a man in the ancient world, dressed in a robe that you got to cinch up and run, the Lord, he initiates. And, and it is his kindness that, that leads to and completes and brings about our, our repentance. Finally, God's people are meant to dwell with him and be indwelled by his spirit. I hope you've seen this tension in this book. There's the tension of being in the Lord's presence and surely facing judgment. In fact, maybe the Lord's absence is a sign that he has judged us outright. And then there's this tension that Joel brings about, that, but you actually have to seek the Lord. You need to go to him. Don't run from him. Come to him. Return to him in repentance and mourning and weeping and and, and, and humility, go to the Lord. And you think, well, how can these things work together if by going to the, the God, the general of this army horde that is sweeping through the land, surely that will mean my death. But because of the Holy Spirit, because of the Lord's gracious presence with his people, that transforms what should be judgment into, into grace. It transforms what should be God's wrath into God's friendship and favor. That, that is the, the way propitiation works, is that the Lord is pleased with us, and it is not because of anything in and of ourselves. It is because of something foreign to us that is imparted, given to us, which is the righteousness of Jesus applied by the Holy Spirit who dwells within God's people. So it remains to be asked then, do we seek the Spirit of the Lord? Do we seek God's presence through the Holy Spirit who speaks to us even now, not just in the quiet of our own hearts, but also through the Word of God which was inspired by His Spirit? If you're wrestling with sin, maybe even secret sin, if you're wrestling with your own identity before the Lord and wondering if, if you are in fact worthy of the Lord and belonging to his people, know that it is his kindness that leads to repentance and it is his love that imparts to us the Holy Spirit and that makes us worthy of dwelling in his presence. And that is where the hope of the Christian lies. It's where the hope of God's people has, has always been. Not that we would scrounge around for grain and wine, but that he would provide those things for us so that we can worship him in spirit and in truth. Let me pray for us. Father, I do thank you for your word and I'm grateful for the truth of Joel that even though being in your presence would surely mean judgment and wrath because of the grace of the gospel, you have converted your wrath into favor through the righteousness of your son, Jesus, which is imparted to us by faith and executed in our lives by your Holy Spirit, whom you have given to us that we might walk with you, not in fear, but with joy. So Lord, help us to follow the words of Joel, that we might turn to you and call on your name by your Spirit. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.